We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go, episode 21 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, March 19th, 2021. As yes, the podcast has reached episode 21. The pod is of the legal drinking age. So we got that going for us here on this Friday. Although sadly, we no longer have the streak going for us. The streak is over. And I guess it had to end sometime. We knew that it wasn't going to go on forever, but no, there was no major late night, or at least primetime, Washington football team free agency news on Thursday night. We had Ryan Fitzpatrick on Monday night, William Jackson III on Tuesday night, Curtis Samuel on Wednesday night. Who knew what might have come last night, right? Kenny Galladay, Juju Smith-Schuster, Trey Boston, who got released by the Carolina Panthers on Wednesday, but alas, no major news on Thursday night, although Washington did officially announce that Curtis Samuel signing on Thursday evening and did officially announce two new signings on Thursday evening, those of David Mayo and Tyler Larson. And it was on Thursday afternoon that Washington officially announced the Ryan Fitzpatrick signing. And we did hear from Fitzmagic, the introductory Zoom press conference for Ryan Fitzpatrick as a Washington football team quarterback. Lots of good stuff, lots of telling stuff from Fitzpatrick in his intro presser. We'll unpack that coming up in just a bit. In addition to, yes, discussing what Washington is getting in these two new additions, David Mayo and Tyler Larson. And guess where each guy used to play? No, seriously, take a wild, random, shot-in-the-dark guess about which team Mayo and Larson have both played for. Oh, hang up and take your answer off the air. 
Uh, I have not one but two special guests for you on the podcast today. Matt Valdovinos, draft analyst for Pro Football Network, a big Washington football team fan. He's a very good X's and O's guy. We'll go in-depth on the Fitzpatrick, Samuel, and Jackson editions. Also, Andy Geiger, creator of Casual Hoya, a must-read site about Georgetown basketball. As yes, on today's show, we get ready for the NCAA tournament, which already is underway, got going right on Thursday night with the four first four games. UCLA overtiming Michigan State. The entire world, by the way, was betting Michigan State for that game. That that was a classic contrarian handicapping play. Everyone's taking Sparty. You go with the Bruins, and of course, UCLA ends up winning in overtime. But anyway, yes, NCAA tournament, first round, Friday and Saturday. I'll give you my thoughts and previews for Maryland, Georgetown, Virginia, which we think will play despite the COVID stuff. Virginia Tech and VCU. Is this the year? Mark Turgeon leads a deep Terrapin tournament run. Is the magic going to continue for the Hoyas? Also, how about the Wizards? What did I say on Thursday's podcast with them playing the best team in the NBA, the Utah Jazz, on Thursday night? I said, watch the Wizards win that game because that's what they do. The Wizards had been reeling. They just lost at home to the lowly Sacramento Kings on Wednesday night. The game against the Jazz, the second game of a back-to-back, right, facing the league-leading Utah Jazz. I said the Wizards will win because that's what they do. They tease you, they do just enough to make you think they're capable of more before disappointing you again. And sure enough, the Wizards won on Thursday night and finally won a game in which Bradley Beal scored 40 or more points. That embarrassing streak is over. So I'll talk Wizards on the podcast. Also got some stuff on the Nationals and Orioles. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. So I did something on Thursday I had not yet done, and that is I read my Apple podcast reviews. I read the reviews of this podcast. I had not actually done that yet. I had seen that we were getting rated and reviewed, and I've been thanking you guys uh, a bunch for that because it's helped out a lot. But I had not actually taken the time to sit and go through, like, review by review what people are saying. And I have to tell you, and this was amazing reading this, what came up as often as maybe anything was the intro song. The topic that is the intro song, the debate that is the intro song, it refuses to go away. It continues to be a thing. I have stumbled into, like, the hottest non-sports topic a sports show could ever have. And I continue to be inundated with emails and tweets about this. Now, you know, I don't like bring it up every day on the podcast because it's, I mean, it's going to get tiresome at some point, but I, I felt like I should at least update you guys on what's happening here with all this. Email from Jason Lowe. Al, I know why people are starting to like that horrible opening music. It isn't the actual music. It is Pavlov's dog experiment all over again. When you hear that awful music, we, your listeners, are now triggered because we know it's coming next. I got this email from Muhammad, and I won't read you the email. I'll just read you the subject line. Excellent podcast. Awful song. Uh, Email from Josh. I will admit the song was annoying in the beginning, but after the first few episodes, it's grown on me, and it's now a staple for your podcast. Interesting, Josh. Email from Michael King. The song has grown on me. I like it. Don't change it. Email from Francesco. My opening theme devotion has developed to get fired up prior to the pod. I hit the back button so I can hear it twice. So Francesco not only likes the song, he hits rewind so he can hear the darn thing two times per episode. And then maybe the best item I've gotten recently was this email from Rich Park, who lives in South Korea. Okay, 
And he says that he can download the podcast at 7 p.m. his time. Good. Interesting. Uh, He adds this, though. He says, I'm more pro-song than anti-song, but to clinch it, I think you need to add song lyrics. Maybe if you just sing over the song intro. No, Rich, I don't think you want me singing over that song because that could take a very bad thing and make it twice as worse. So I don't think you want that. But Rich actually wrote lyrics to the podcast intro song. He basically wants me to sing Al Galdi's podcast. Wake up. No, I'm not doing that, man. I'm not doing that, Rich. See, I've already probably done too much in even trying to sing the lyrics that you typed up in that email. But this is what I continue to deal with people. Constant feedback about the intro song. I will simply say this because I don't want to say too much. There could be something very special happening with the music we end up playing to begin this podcast. And I don't want to say anything more than that. Just understand on a daily basis, after I'm done recording this podcast, the work is just beginning. We are constantly working on the podcast, tinkering with the podcast, trying to make it as best as we can make it. You know, like you may have noticed, I've been doing guests on Zoom as opposed to over the phone. I was not satisfied with the audio quality of some of the initial guests over the phones. I said, you know, we got to do this thing on Zoom, get better audio quality. I feel like it's been better. But you tell me, all right? Because I am at your mercy, okay? I am here for you. So you tell me what you think about all the various things going on. I do like, by the way, that you guys like the timestamps I'm putting on the podcast. I think that's important, right? So we, we I, I itemize topic by topic what we're talking about, give you the timestamps. You can pick and choose what you want to hear, you know, because I know not everyone is interested in everything. We are in this thing together at the end of the day, man. It is you. It is me. We ride every weekday morning. Your DC Sports Express, Monday through Friday. The revolution is continuing and continuing strong, and I got you guys to thank for that. All right. Fitz Magic officially introduced as a Washington football team quarterback. So the Washington football team making two of the three major free agent signings officially official on Thursday. The Ryan Fitzpatrick and Curtis Samuel signings now are official. Samuel going to be speaking via Zoom press conference on Friday. Fitzpatrick spoke on Thursday afternoon. And watching that thing as I did, and I'm sure many of you did, I don't know about you, but one thing stood out as much as anything. And it mirrors in so many ways the way Ryan Fitzpatrick plays the quarterback position. And that is, this is a guy who is so at peace with who he is, what he's done, and where he's going. You know, this is a guy who, for like lack of a better phrase, he just doesn't care. And and I say that not like he doesn't care about his performance or doesn't care about his team or anything like that. I say that as he is who he is. And if you don't like it, that's your problem. You know, like this is kind of where he's at. This, This is someone who was a seventh round pick out of Harvard in the 2005 NFL draft. And here we are, he's about to enter his 17th NFL season. This is a guy who had no business playing in the NFL. This is a guy who certainly has had no business playing in the NFL for nearly two decades. And yet that is exactly what he has done. So when it comes to, well, Ryan, you're on another new team and you change teams every so often and you've thrown some interceptions in your career. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. The guy has seven kids. The guy has made millions of dollars. The guy has been revered by his teammates for years. 
The guy is one of the more popular players in the NFL because of his story, because of the beard, because he looks like Conor McGregor, because of the nickname Fitzmagic. He is totally at peace and comfortable with who he is. It's one of the more empowering things you can ever get to in terms of like a point in your life when just you, you, you feel totally at peace with who you are, what you've done, where you're going. And it's one of the more, I think, endearing qualities you can ever see in someone when like you see that person and he or she is just like, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. I don't care. I just, I totally got that vibe from Fitzpatrick on Thursdays. It was a pretty cool thing. So let's start with this. He did not get asked about what he has been told regarding being the starting quarterback. I couldn't get over that. He got asked like a million questions about having played for different teams, but there was, there were zero questions about, Hey Ryan, what have you been told about being the starting quarterback or how was this opportunity presented to you? The closest thing we got regarding what exactly is the deal here, is it a true open competition, Ryan Fitzpatrick versus Taylor Heineke versus Kyle Allen versus whoever else may be brought on board, or is this Fitzpatrick, you are the QB1, that's the way this thing has been set up. You may have seen this on Thursday, Andy Dalton said that he was told by the Chicago Bears that he's the guy, that that's why Dalton signed with the Bears. Dalton was told by Chicago, point blank, you're going to be our QB1 for 2021. So this was the closest we got to Fitzpatrick on where things stand regarding Washington's starting quarterback for the 2021 season. Fitzpatrick on what assurances he was looking for regarding QB1 for 2021 with Washington. Just a chance. I mean, that's that's all I've asked for my whole career. I just want a chance to, you know, have the opportunity to compete. And, you know, I've probably have too much confidence in myself, but that's, that's just something that I've always had and something that's been a huge advantage for me that's allowed me to stick around for as long as I have is I have the ultimate belief in myself and I feel like whatever situation I'm put in, if I have a chance to compete, that's that's all I want. And so I'm excited for the opportunity. And you heard it right there. The confidence with which Ryan Fitzpatrick does what he does. The self-belief possessed by Ryan Fitzpatrick. Quote, I've had the ultimate belief in myself. I feel like whatever situation I'm put in, if I have the chance to compete, that's all I want. End quote. Yes, This is a guy, again, zero business in having the career he's ended up having. A seventh round pick out of Harvard in 05, and he's still playing in the NFL going into the 2021 season. Like, that's incredible when you think about that. There will be, or at least there should be, documentaries done on this guy's career when all is said and done. But yeah, you didn't really get any true insight into, okay, is this a true wide open competition? Like, what have you been told, Ryan, about what the deal is going to be at quarterback for 2021. You likely know where I stand. I want an open, honest, good faith quarterback competition. Fitzpatrick, Heineke, Allen, or whoever gets brought in here. You know, it is still possible Washington drafts a quarterback. I do think the signing of Fitzpatrick lessens that likelihood, but you you can't say it's impossible, right? I mean, anything is possible. Uh, So that could go down. And who knows what else ends up developing here? I mean, you know, it, it's, it always ends up being unpredictable with these things. I think about where we were a year ago at this time with Washington at quarterback. It was Dwayne Haskins. Oh, yeah, it's going to be Dwayne Haskins. Yeah. How'd that end up going? You know, Alex Smith? Nah, he's done. Forget about that. You know, it's going to be Haskins. Kyle Allen? That's the very competitive competition that Ron Rivera's bringing in here. Kyle Allen? Like, you know, so how we view the situation now can be very different versus what ends up playing out. I just want a true competition, that's all, and may the best man win. And if it happens to be Fitzpatrick, 
then so be it. All right, what about the 2021 season? Ryan Fitzpatrick going into his age 39 season. Fitzpatrick on Thursday on what he wants to get out of this coming NFL season. Well, I I just love playing football. I, I love being out there. And, um, you know, after this last season, it, it's just the climb that I've made in my career. I mean, I'm playing better right now than I've ever played in my career. And I just feel like I've got a lot, a lot of great football ahead of me, which sounds crazy, but uh, being 38 years old and uh, figuring some things out about myself, I, I just, I love football. I love the competition. I love the camaraderie. I love, you know, working together as a team for a common goal. And those are just things that I don't know where else I would find that. And so, you know, after last season, sitting down with my wife and just saying, look, I think I'm, playing better than I ever have. And and I still love playing this game. And she just looked at me and said, you'd be crazy not to keep playing. So, you know, that's a lot of the reason why I still do it. And, you know, side note from that, just having seven little kids uh, that are able to kind of experience this with me and see what dad does for a living. Um, that's a lot of fun for me too. Yeah, and you heard Fitzpatrick say it there. I'm playing better right now than I've ever played in my career. And he admits that sounds crazy being 38 years old, but it's not incorrect. Ryan Fitzpatrick has demonstrated an ability to play at a high level over the last three years. I I think this gets lost with Ryan Fitzpatrick. It's easy to maybe not be aware of this with Ryan Fitzpatrick. He's been top 10 in the NFL in ESPN's total QBR each of the last two years, fifth in 2020 eighth in 2019. Like how many people were aware of that until Fitzpatrick signed with Washington? How many people were aware of that until I brought it up on this podcast just a few days ago? The guy has been playing at a high level. Like if you consider a top 10 quarterback to be, you know, upper tier quarterback, right? I think most people would. He's been an upper tier NFL quarterback over the last two years. Like, you know, it sneaks up on you. You're not necessarily aware of that. Until you, you you take a look at some stuff, he has played his best football over the last few years. Remember this with total QBR, you know, because people say like, well, there's empty stats. Total QBR factors in context. That's why I reference it all the time. It's not just like passing yards or even passing touchdowns or something like that. QBR factors in game context. Okay, so what you do in the fourth quarter of a close game matters a lot more than what you do in the fourth quarter of a blowout loss, you know, so you can't just be a stat stuffer and you can't just accumulate, rack up a bunch of empty stats like Dwayne Haskins did against the Baltimore Ravens and then brag about that, you know what I mean? Like QBR takes into account what you do, when you do what you do, and against whom you do what you do. So facing quality defenses, you get upgraded for that. And if you feast on a bunch of bad defenses, you get downgraded for that. So that's why I always look at QBR. It's not gospel like anything else, but it's the best one-stop shop stat there is for evaluating quarterback play. Fitzpatrick has been top 10 the last two seasons. And in 2018, when he didn't qualify for the QBR rankings, he finished first in the NFL in yards per pass attempt that year at 9.6. It's so interesting in the NFL right now, isn't it? Because age matters so much in so many sports, including football, you know, especially at a position like running back, right? Where it's like, once you turn 30, you fall off the cliff. And yet, and yet in this era in which we get so fixated on how old is the guy and how is he aging and things like that, quarterbacks have never been better in terms of how they're aging than they are right now. It's remarkable. It goes so against the grain of what we're seeing 
in so many different sports. Like in baseball, especially right now, your age matters. Now that they have strict PED testing and you don't have guys like Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds peaking in their late 30s, like where you're at on the aging curve is a big, big deal. And in the NFL right now, at quarterback, it's like it doesn't matter what your age is. You can beat Tom Brady and win a Super Bowl in your age 43 season. You can be Ryan Fitzpatrick and in your late 30s be having the best statistical seasons of your career. What about, though, this growth of Fitzpatrick, right? I mean, he comes into the league in 05. How is it, why is it that he's playing his best football in 2018, 2019, 2020? What changed? When did things turn for Fitzpatrick? I I think, you know, when I look at my career, uh, I think 2014, when I got with Bill O'Brien in Houston and George Godsey as my quarterback coach, that was a turning point in my career. And they helped me see the game in a different way. Um, and since then, uh, I, just, I just feel like I've become a much better player. Uh, you know, 2016 was a, was a rough year for me for a lot of different reasons, but uh, from 14 on, you know, I just feel like I've gotten better every single year and, um, you know, had a chance to learn in a couple different offenses from a, t- a couple different coordinators and coaches. And I just continue to incorporate things that I like about different offenses and things that I've, you know, grown to like about myself into my playing experience every year. And it's really helped me. So how about that? Ryan Fitzpatrick crediting none other than Bill O'Brien as having played a role in Fitzpatrick getting to where he's at here right now. Fitzpatrick might be the only guy these days who has anything nice to say about Bill O'Brien, but he said those nice things at the intro presser on Thursday. Of course, with Ryan Fitzpatrick, like if you do like the signing, if you are optimistic about the signing, the reason you are is because of the way Fitzpatrick plays the game. I think the only reservation to have about the Fitzpatrick signing is the potential opportunity cost i.e. if you're playing Fitzpatrick in 2021, what exactly are you doing? Where exactly are you going, right? Like, why not play someone younger and see if that guy can be a longer-term answer than just Fitzpatrick, who figures to be nothing more than a one-year, maybe a two-year stopgap. Although, again, with the way quarterbacks are aging, maybe not. Maybe this guy's got three or four more years to go in terms of playing at a high level. But if he does play in 2021, I do think you're going to see things we haven't seen here in a very long while. There's a reason the guy is known as YOLO Fitz, okay? YOLO Fitz, you only live once. The guy plays with a reckless abandon that is a ton of fun to watch. And yes, it can get him in trouble, right? Fitz tragic, can throw interceptions. I get that. But the guy is a chucker. He throws it deep. He is a quarterback who has been responsible for a number of explosive plays in his career, especially recently. Again, top 10 in QBR each of the last two seasons, number one in the NFL in yards per pass attempt in 2018. Ryan Fitzpatrick on Thursday on what to expect from the Washington offense with him at quarterback. Well, I I think, I mean, my style of play, you know, I'm going to give my guys chances. I am not a guy that's going to sit there and be afraid to throw the ball down the field. Uh, You know, I'm going to try to make the right plays, but uh, if I've got a chance and I believe in my guy one-on-one, I'm going to give him a chance. And I think, you know, guys like playing with me because of that. I'm able to instill confidence in guys because I give them those opportunities. And uh, just kind of playing with that absence of fear, I think, goes a long way. And, 
you know, it's, it's, it's one of the reasons I still play too, is I, I love doing it. I love uh, giving guys chances and that style of play at quarterback is, is going away a little bit. I love that phrase that he used in that answer there, playing with that absence of fear. That's the way Fitzpatrick plays. He plays with an absence of fear. He is YOLO Fitz. He is completely comfortable with who he is. He doesn't have to care about what other people think about him. Again, he has no business still playing in the NFL, and yet he is. Seventh round pick out of Harvard in 05, and he's going into his age 39 season, his 17th. NFL season, and he will do things at the quarterback position that we have not seen here in a very long time, and that is throw the football deep. Ryan Fitzpatrick is the opposite of a lot of what we have been seeing with Washington at quarterback. Fitzpatrick in 2020, 13th in the NFL in average completed air yards per NFL's next-gen stats at 6.5. The two worst guys in that category were two Washington quarterbacks and Alex Smith and Dwayne Haskins. You know, speaking of Alex, I got to thinking about this on Thursday. I think Ryan Fitzpatrick, in a lot of ways, is like the Bizarro World Alex Smith. If you remember the Seinfeld episode with the Bizarro World, like Bizarro World Jerry, Bizarro World Kramer, Ryan Fitzpatrick to me is Bizarro World Alex, where Ryan, like Alex, is a very hard worker and is beloved by his teammates, you know? So like the leadership stuff, they are uh, um, in, in the same way in that regard. But Fitzpatrick does quarterback in like the totally opposite fashion that Alex does quarterback. Alex throws short. Alex throws checkdowns. Alex throws short of the sticks. Like that's just what Alex has done for so much of his career. Fitzpatrick is the opposite. Fitzpatrick throws deep. Fitzpatrick is a chucker. Fitzpatrick is YOLO Fitz. Fitzpatrick does throw picks, which is something Alex, for the most part in his career, has not done. So it's like, again, Fitzpatrick is bizarro world Alex. And I think Ron Rivera looks at Fitzpatrick, and that's what he sees. He sees a guy in Fitzpatrick who has Alex's best qualities, the leadership, the work ethic, teammates loving the guy, etc. But Fitzpatrick does the quarterback position in the opposite way that Alex does it. And I think Ron wants more of that. I think Washington needs more of that. I get where Ron's coming from in having wanted to bring Fitzpatrick on board. Now, I keep going back to this. I don't want this to be just handed to Fitzpatrick. I still want a bigger picture view of the quarterback position. And if Washington has decided this offseason that this is the best we're going to do and that we're better off signing Fitzpatrick to a one-year $10 million contract as opposed to giving away assets to get Sam Darnold or giving away assets to trade up to take someone in the first round of the NFL draft, then so be it. Like, you better be right on that stuff. But you may well be right. You know, that this maybe this offseason isn't the offseason to go up and try to get someone who's going to be your franchise quarterback because that someone may not be available to you and you shouldn't ever force yourself to fall in love with a quarterback, you know, because that's a very dangerous thing and that can happen when you're trying to figure out that position. So Fitzpatrick as a one-year stopgap, maybe a multi-year stopgap, isn't some insane idea and it doesn't necessarily even have to be Fitzpatrick for this upcoming season. Let's see what we do have in Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen. But if it is Fitzpatrick, I'm not going to sit here and lie to you. It is going to be exciting. It is going to be different. And I think it could be very productive. Yeah, Fitzmagic drops bombs the way one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland, is dropping commissions. You know, outrageous commissions have been a staple in real estate for as long 
as we can remember. That has never sat right with John Granlund. And how about what he's got going on right now? John G. with Real Broker is selling homes for free. That's right, for free. The thing that has been the hang-up for so many for so long, the commission. How much you're going to have to pay in commission to the real estate agent. John Grandland is wiping that off the table, but still providing you with high-level service. From the moment you dial John's number to the last page of the paperwork signed, he is there. He handles everything. Professional photography, detailed market analysis, a huge syndication network, and so much more to ensure you that you're not hunting for buyers months on end. And when John sells your home, you don't have to pay the commission. So if you get an offer for $500,000, that 15 grand that you would normally have to pay to the listing agent, that stays right in your pocket. And then John can help you find the home of your dreams and everyone feels right at home. This is revolutionary. This is game-changing. This is happening. Get in on it. Expansive services at the lowest commission possible. Zero. You can't go lower than zero. To find out more, to find your home's value, visit johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. Or better yet, call up John Granlin. He's a great guy, big Washington football team fan, big Nationals fan. Give him a call. See what he can do for you. Again, zero commission, 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. Tell him Al Galdi sent you and start packing. So like we said, the Ryan Fitzpatrick and Curtis Samuel signings became official for the Washington football team on Thursday, which was day two of the NFL's new league year. Also officially announced by Washington on Thursday were two new signings, those of unrestricted free agent linebacker David Mayo and unrestricted free agent center Tyler Larson. So let's start with David Mayo because obviously linebacker has been a big need for Washington this offseason. And whereas Washington has addressed quarterback, addressed receiver, addressed corner, Washington had, up until Thursday, not yet addressed linebacker. And it was a thinning linebacker market in terms of free agency. You had maybe the top two guys never even making it to free agency. Levante David re-signing with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Matt Milano re-signing with the Buffalo Bills. Jayon Brown reportedly re-signing with the Tennessee Titans. Uh, There was the news that Kyle Van Noy, who was released by the Miami Dolphins, reportedly going back to the New England Patriots, going to be signing with them. So it's like all these options we talked about, looked at, uh, they're all disappearing here. And Washington had not yet done anything at linebacker. Now, you know, to what extent David Mayo qualifies as having done something at linebacker can be debated, but he has played and he actually had a halfway decent season a couple of years ago. So David Mayo going into his age 28 season, he has played for, yes, you guessed it, the Carolina Panthers. Uh, The Panthers took Mayo in the fifth round of the 2015 draft at a Texas State. He played for the Panthers for four seasons, 2015 through 2018, as mostly a special teams player. And in fact, he led the Panthers in special team snaps in 2016 and 2017. It was number two on the Panthers in special team snaps in 2018. So this may well be nothing more than a depth signing, a special team signing. I I, I don't think Washington is looking at Mayo as, okay, he's going to be one of our starting linebackers. But, you know, this could be like, all right, we still want to make a much bigger splash at the linebacker spot. But at least we do have a guy here in Mayo who, if need be, can play and at the very least can help us out on special teams. Now, the last few years for Mayo have been interesting. He, upon having played for the Panthers for four years, ended up signing a two-year contract with the San Francisco 49ers in March 2019. 
but he never actually ended up playing in a regular season game for the Niners. He got released by the Niners in their cut down to 53 for the 2019 season, signed with the New York Giants in September of 2019, played for them for the last two seasons. Now, Mayo in 2019 played for the Giants in all 16 games, including 13 starts. Uh, That was his best season. That was certainly his most prominent season in terms of playing on defense. And he had an interesting year because per pro football focus, David Mayo in 2019 was an elite run stopper, but was terrible in pass coverage. And of course, that's not exactly what Washington needs out of the linebacker position right now. I mean, you do want to be better at stopping the run. That's true. And Mayo in 2019 for PFF had a run defense grade of 90.1, which is outstanding. But he also had a coverage grade of just 48.8, which as our friend Steve Spurrier would say, not very good. No, it's not. It's not very good. And we all know that linebackers in pass coverage That's been a problem for Washington for years. Linebackers covering tight ends has been a big-time issue for Washington for years. So I wouldn't be counting on David Mayo if, in fact, he ends up being leaned on to play, uh, excelling in that department. But at least you know from a run-stopping standpoint, he had a very good year in 2019. Last season, 2020, Mayo played in just 11 games for the Giants, including two starts due to a torn meniscus in his left knee. So he is not the fix. There is still a much bigger splash really bigger splashes that need to be made at linebacker. And it is starting to feel right, like Washington may be targeting the NFL draft to beef up the linebacker situation. Although I don't think you should ever go into a draft saying, we're going to address this position with our first round pick. Like I think best player available is always the way to go. I don't like this talk of like, well, now what is Washington going to do at 19? Well, they're going to take a linebacker because that's what they need. It's like you take the best guy available and you figure out the other stuff later. You know, I don't think need should never enter into what you do, but I think need should never be the primary driving force behind what you do. I think it's always you take the best guy available because what doesn't seem like a need today can become a big time need tomorrow. Injury can change everything with something like that. But, you know, as we're now sort of getting into like the second tier of free agency, like a lot of the bigger names are off the market, although not at receiver. I mean, this receiver market, it is amazing, right? I mean, Kenny Galladay, Juju Smith-Schuster still out there, you know, and I got to think starting to sweat it out here because boy, have those guys free agencies not gone nearly as well as they were supposed to go. But, you know, like I said, at linebacker, it's it's become a thinned market. So I'm not really sure how much of a big splash you can make anymore at linebacker. But of course, you don't have to make a big splash to fix the position, right? We saw that last year in free agency with Washington with the signings of Logan Thomas, J.D. McKissick, Ronald Darby, Wes Schweitzer, Cornelius Lucas. All of those signings were like, you know, third or fourth tier signings. And yet all of those guys ended up being good to very good for Washington last season. The other guy who Washington brought on board on Thursday, Tyler Larson, an unrestricted free agent center. Uh, Larson going into his age 30 season. And Tyler Larson has been with, wait for it, yes, the Carolina Panthers. Uh, Larson came into the NFL as an undrafted free agent at a Utah State with the Miami Dolphins in 2014. Never played in an NFL regular season game, though, until playing for the Panthers for five seasons, 2016 to 2020. Uh, Larson in 2017 actually started 10 games with the Panthers due to their center Ryan Khalil being injured. So he's a guy who Ron Rivera, who the offensive line coach John Matsko have used in the past as a starter. Larson is. This is clearly a depth signing. You know, it's not even a given Larson makes the team, but at least he is an option. Uh, Larson actually was with Washington all the way back in 2015, but he got waived in the cut down to 53 
for that season. And of course, if things go as we want them to go, Tyler Larson never takes a single regular season snap at the center position, or I guess I should say never initiates a single regular season snap at the center position, because that'll mean that Chase Roulier has had another good and healthy season. Remember, Washington signed Roulier to a four-year contract extension on January 2nd, $40.5 million, $19 million guaranteed. He had been set to become an unrestricted free agent this offseason. And the thing with Roulier, first of all, he's become a very good center. You know, every year the guy's demonstrated improvement. But Roulier doesn't miss time. He became Washington's starting center beginning with the 2018 season. Uh, Roulier, over the last three years, 2018 through 2020, has started 46 of a possible 48 regular season games. Like the guy has been a staple in terms of being out there for Washington. And it's not just that. Roulier doesn't miss any snaps. Roulier in 2018 and in 2020, in those two regular seasons, played on every Washington offensive snap. So it's not just he's playing in every game. He's playing on every snap. Uh, It's been amazing the extent to which Chase Roulier has been dependable for Washington. And this, of course, is another guy, you know, not unlike a Ryan Fitzpatrick type. Chase Roulier got taken by Washington in the sixth round of the 2017 draft. I mean, you you say like, what are the best day three finds for Washington over the last 10 years? Roulier and Alfred Morris, okay? Like Roulier is on that level here where six round picks, guys who have been very productive, were very productive for Washington. Uh, Roulier, terrific find by Washington. Sixth round in that 2017 draft out of Wyoming. Our two special guests, Matt Valdivinos and Andy Geiger, coming up shortly. Also, tons on the tournament. As, yes, March's biggest tournament is finally here. We do not know who will be cutting down the nets at the end, but we do know there will be no shortage of madness. DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, is putting new customers in the center of the action. Bet $4 on an underdog, win $256 if the underdog wins. It's that simple. Turning $4 into $256 is 64 to 1 odds. Every dollar you bet could turn into $64. Pick one of many select college basketball underdogs for your shot at winning $256. All it takes is a $4 bet. There's no better way to put your college basketball knowledge to the test than to put your money where your mouth is with DraftKings Sportsbook. And do not worry if college basketball is not for you. DraftKings Sportsbook offers great odds and promotions on golf, hockey, and so much more. DraftKings is safe, secure, reliable. You can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. So here's what you do. Again, turn $4 into $256. Who don't want to do that? Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use this promo code, GALDI, real simple, G-A-L-D-I, when you sign up to turn again $4 into $256 if the underdog of your choosing pulls off the upset. That's code GALDI to turn $4 into $256 for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, Virginia only, new customers only, restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for details. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call the Virginia Problem Gambling Helpline at 888-532-3500. All right, very pleased to welcome the Al Galdi podcast right now. Matt Valdivinos, draft analyst for Pro Football Network and a big Washington football team fan. He's had a lot of great content out there lately. Matt, it's good to talk to you, man. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm, I mean, I'm really enjoying this agency period. Uh, it's been really exciting, so I'm having a great time. Awesome. So we'll get to the specifics on each guy shortly. But overall, 
How do you like what Washington did with its first three additions in free agency and Ryan Fitzpatrick, William Jackson the third, and Curtis Samuel? I mean, I think they got better, right? As simple as that. I think when you look, I mean, Pro Football Focus thinks that they got, they are so far the most improved team in the NFL based off their war. And I think that's pretty accurate. I think obviously there's a debate between teams like Washington, teams like maybe New England, but I do think that Washington is very much there in the forefront of having put together the best free agency period so far. I mean, you got better on defense, you got better on offense. So you looked at the holes on the roster going in, and they did a really good job of filling the two biggest needs uh, in the starting quarterback and a wide receiver, two opposite Terry McLaurin. Uh, and they also went out and improved their already top two defense from last year. So I think they've done a really, really good job. Uh, they haven't overpaid for anyone, which is something we've been used to in the past. I really like all the contracts. So I'm very, very comfortable with what they've done so far. And I'm excited to see what they continue to do this offseason. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I think it's been a great job so far with, of course, you know, the caveat of we got to see what happens come the season. It's interesting, though. I mean, you reference Fitzpatrick as the starting quarterback. Do you think, in fact, he will end up being Washington's starter this season? I don't think that it's um, guaranteed, right? I don't think that should be set in stone because I do think that Ron really likes what Kyle Allen did with the team last year and obviously liked him enough to go out and trade for him last year. And then I think what Taylor Heineke showed in the, the playoff game is more than enough to warrant at least the opportunity for them to have a, a true quarterback competition and let the best man take over the job. I just think that given where the team is and, and how the roster is constructed, that Ryan Fitzpatrick probably makes the most sense and would be my guess as to who the week one starter is going to be. But I could definitely see any of these three guys coming out. I think they feel comfortable that way. And I wouldn't take the idea of them moving up to go get a rookie quarterback off the table. But if it's just these three guys on you know, the roster moving forward, I think any three of them do have the opportunity to start week one should they separate themselves in so, training camp and in that quarterback contest. So I wanted to get into some of the X's and O's stuff with you. And Matt's been doing a great job breaking some of this down. You can follow him on Twitter, at MV Scouting. When you look at Ryan Fitzpatrick and you say, okay, going into playing in this Scott Turner offense, do you see that as a good mesh? I do, because I think what Scott Turner really wants to do is I think he wants to push the ball down the field more consistently. You just didn't have that opportunity with Alex Smith because he really didn't have the base anymore once he got that leg injury to really put velocity on his throws down the field. So you saw... Alex Smith was, was bottom in the NFL in things like vertical route percentage, intermediate throw percentage, uh, and was low in the bottom third in the NFL in tight window throws as well because he just couldn't generate the velocity that you wanted to see from him. Uh, so a lot of the routes, you know, we saw J.D. McKissick get so involved when Alex Smith was there because so much of the passes were coming within five yards of the line of scrimmage, and you really just can't win that way. When you have a defense that's elite as Washington's was last year, you, you're able to go 5-1 and one in that span, but you saw – if you can't produce, you're not going to be able to separate yourselves from, from the good teams. So with Ryan Fitzpatrick, yes, you do have more of an interception. Likelihood, a guy like you know Ryan Fitzpatrick has always been willing to push the ball down the field, but it's because of those risks. It's because of those you know 50-50 chances that you like to see, those pushing the balls down the field, taking a deep shot, keeping the defense honest and out of the box so consistently. That's what Ryan Fitzpatrick provides. So it's not only a boost to your passing game that wants to push the ball down the field with guys like you know Terry, Terry McLaurin and Curtis Samuel, who are both true 4-3 athletes. Not only are you pushing the ball down the field, but now you're keeping the defense from stacking the box constantly. And guys like Antonio Gibson get to eat more. Guys like J.D. McKissick get to eat more. So I think overall, you're looking at an offense that's much more well-rounded and much more dynamic as opposed to what it was last year. Yeah, there's no doubt. And I mean, to me, Ron Rivera, you could tell, soured on Alex as the year went on, even though they kept winning. And that's true. And, you know, I don't think Ron was ever really that interested in keeping Alex on board. And I think one of the reasons is exactly what you just talked about. It was not a dynamic passing game. Fitzpatrick can obviously 
make that happen. Now, I, I know you do a lot with the draft. It, it, it is intriguing, right? Could Washington still draft a quarterback? How realistic to you is, say, a Trey Lance, a Mac Jones, maybe even a Justin Fields falling to Washington at number 19, or, or at least falling to close to 19 to where Washington could reasonably trade up and take the guy? So based on everything, so we have to talk to a lot of draft insiders over at PFN because we work on the mock draft simulator um, weekly. So we're always looking for more information. And so based on what I've talked to to NFL insiders and draft insiders, it sounds like the most likely scenario is that Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, and Trey Lance are all gone within the first four picks, which would leave Justin Fields to fall. Now, I think Washington actually is highly motivated to move up and go get a guy. It just depends on where, right? It's hard to imagine that they'd move into the top five because it's hard to imagine a team picking top five would be willing to fall all the way back to 19. But if they could swing a trade, they think they could get that for maybe two first-round picks, a couple day-two picks, maybe a player, then that would make a lot of sense to me. But what I think the most likely scenario if Washington was to get a rookie quarterback is Justin Fields makes it to that seventh pick, that that Lions pick, right after Philadelphia. Uh, If he can make it there, I think he's the best fit for Washington's what they want to do. I think he's safe with the ball, but he's, you've seen at Ohio State, he loves to push the ball down the field. He's more than willing to push the ball down the field with guys like Chris Olave out there. And so with Justin Fields, I think if he makes it to that seventh pick, I think the Lions aren't necessarily convinced that they want to take a quarterback, especially if it's someone like Fields, who maybe they're not sold on, but Ron Rivera is. That's, I think, the position where, okay, this team is highly motivated. They've built this roster. It, it's a very competitive roster. I think there's, I don't think there's an argument as to whether or not it's the best art roster in the NFC East. It's just that quarterback position past this year really doesn't have an answer. And so, and even this year, right, Ryan Fitzpatrick isn't necessarily the best answer quarterback, but he's better than what Washington has had, which is what the fans are excited about. But if a guy like Justin Fields does fall into that seven, eight, nine range, I don't think he would make it past eight. I think Carolina would be very interested in selecting him, but if he makes it to that seven spot at Detroit, I could definitely see Washington putting up a package to go move all the way up to get their guy. If Washington did take a quarterback, say on day one or day two, who do you think is the odd man out out of Fitzpatrick, Heineke, and Allen? I would guess probably Taylor Heineke. Uh, as upsetting as that is, he's the person who's, you know, I think with Fitzpatrick, the contract you gave him, he's almost a guaranteed. So now it's Kyle Allen versus Taylor Heineke. Uh, I think Heineke's contract is a little bit more suited for, for being whether or not he can make the roster. And I think Kyle Allen's just been in the system for a lot longer, so they, they're comfortable with what he is and what he provides as a stability as the backup. Uh, Kyle Allen's also younger than both of the guys, I believe, so... It, it would make sense. I think Taylor Heineke is probably the odd man out uh, in that way. Um, but I I mean, I still think they would have a quarterback competition. I don't think Ron's the kind of guy who would just give the first round rookie that week one starter if he's not the best quarterback. So whoever the fourth best quarterback is besides the rookie probably ends up getting removed. Talking with Matt Valdivinos, draft analyst for Pro Football Network, a big Washington football team fan. So let's move to Curtis Samuel, speed, youth, position flex. How do you see Samuel impacting Washington's offense? Well, this is huge because this was, other than quarterback, this is what I viewed as Washington's biggest need. They could not separate, they could not generate consistent production out of any receiver other than Terry McLaurin. And later in the year, especially when Alex Smith got in, it was pretty much don't let Terry McLaurin catch the ball within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage and their offense cannot push the ball through the air. And they couldn't. Washington's offense really, really struggled. The defense played huge and Antonio Gibson was really good until he started, got that turf dome. And so with Washington's receiving unit, I was really, really concerned about what the wide receiver market was going to look like. We saw guys like Corey Davis and Nelson Aguilar go off early, signing a lot shorter, a lot for a lot less money per year than many expected. And so with Curtis Samuel, you got him at 11.5. I think that's huge for his APY. And what he's going to do in Scott Turner's offense is a little different than what he did in Carolina, because 
in Carolina, they really didn't have an option um, but to play Curtis Samuel at that Z opposite of DJ Moore on the boundary because they didn't have anyone to play that Z position. Once they got Robbie Anderson, Curtis Samuel was able to play in the slot. He had his best year of his career this past year, and I think he's capable of doing that in Washington as well. So I think we're going to see him used a little bit differently than Scott Turner-Rarriver had originally used him. Uh, he's going to get a lot of looks over the middle field moving horizontally, uh, while Terry McLaurin, I think, functions as the main vertical threat. But we will see Samuel have more than his fair share of plays down the field. Was Samuel the receiver you most wanted Washington to sign in terms of the big fish in free agency? Because I, I know he was for me. And I know a lot of people were big on Kenny Galladay, and, and I get it. But, you know, all the talk about Galladay maybe getting like $16, 17000000 million a year, it's like Samuel to me at 11.5, given his youth, his speed, again, the position flex, he can carry the football. I just think that's a better buy. Yeah, I completely agree. And I also think that he's pretty Samuel's a little more scheme versatile with Kenny Galladay. My biggest concern was that you have to have a quarterback who's willing to give him the contested situations. Now, Ryan Fitzpatrick is that quarterback, but the team is not moving forward expecting Ryan Fitzpatrick to be the starting quarterback for the next multiple years. And so if you go out and get a rookie quarterback who's maybe not super interested in constantly going down the field and giving up those risky 50-50 balls like Ryan Fitzpatrick is, Kenny Galladay's skill set is not used to the full of its extent. Well, a guy like Curtis Samuel, even if you're not pushing the ball down the field as often as you would like, he's still being capable of making plays with the ball in his hands close to the line of scrimmage. So I think down the line, it also makes more sense because it provides more flexibility for who your quarterback can be. And then as well as Terry McLaurin's going to have a contract coming up in the next couple of years, you're going to have to pay him superstar money. Curtis Samuel with that 11.5 makes that a lot easier. Yeah, there's no question about that. So the reason I initially contacted you was your breakdown of William Jackson III. What is Washington getting in Jackson, in your opinion? I mean, I think a, a true CB1. Uh, there has been times where his play's fallen down a bit. I uh, like that 2019 season was, was rough. But I think if you look at what William Jackson, the situation he's been in in Cincinnati, he has never had a defense nearly as talented as Washington has right now. Um, the pass rush in Washington is arguably and I don't even think this is a hot take, is probably just the best in football, right? You have three true pocket-crushing defensive tackles and two defensive ends who are elite athletes, and one with Chase Young, you expect to be a superstar. You have a really, really good boundary corner opposite him in Kendall Fuller. You have Jimmy Moreland at the slot. William Jackson gives you an upgrade over Ronald Darby, which some were wondering what they were going to do once he walked. Uh, I think Ron saw him as a guy who can be the number one cornerback in this defense, Uh they ran a lot of heavy zone last year, but I think that's because that's what fit Darby and Fuller better. Um, Fuller can play man, but the best man we ever saw Kendall Fuller play was in the slot as a tight end mismatch running backs. Um, he's not a phenomenal athlete. He's not a true 4-4-4-3 guy like William Jackson is. And Jack Del Rio loves to run a bunch of cover one in Denver. He just couldn't do that last year because of, of, of who he had. And so with William Jackson, that opens up that more man coverage because he's a guy who can shut down a true number one. He's a guy who can follow and shadow. He did it against Terry McLaurin last year. And so he provides more versatility in what you're doing on your defense. He provides more schemes, more looks for opposing offenses. And, and overall, just that acquisition, I think, really pushes Washington into that true top defense in the NFL discussion. Yeah, I like how you explain that because I know that that became kind of a thing of, well, Jackson's better in man than he is in zone, and Washington played a lot of zone last year, so how are the two things going to mesh? You know, is this another Josh Norman situation? It's like, no, Jack Del Rio did a lot of man in Denver. Jack was adapting to the talent in front of him in 2020. Now, th that said, if Washington does do more man in 2021, do you think that Kendall Fuller, Jimmy Moreland, Cameron Curl, et al. are, are up to that task? I definitely do because I think 
with a guy like William Jackson. Now, Kendall Fuller is playing man up on wide receiver twos across the, the board, right? I'm comfortable with that matchup. I can go into that game saying I feel very good about Kendall Fuller guarding Darius Slayton or Kendall Fuller guarding Jalen Rager or, you know, someone like that. Whereas William Jackson, we have for the Amari Coopers. Uh, we have for guys like that. So it's going to be huge for, for Kendall Fuller. And the Jimmy Moreland is just going to play in the slot. He did a lot of that anyways. Um, so I, his, his role is not going to change too much. The biggest concern is the linebackers. Um, Cam Crow we saw last year really, really do well against some of the tight ends in that man coverage. I thought had a really, really good game specifically against the 49ers. I think showed everywhere um, that Cam Crow really has the ability to be a multiple safety, something you don't get from Landon Collins. And so I think the defense is more than set up to have a phenomenal year. I do not think it is any stretch to go into the year and say Washington will have a bid as the best defense in football. What? And William Jackson is a huge reason why. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And you've kind of, I think, already answered this, but he is now their top corner, right? He supplants Kendall Fuller. I would, I would imagine that on, on times, I mean, obviously you're going to adjust it throughout how the season plays out, right? If Kendall Fuller is just outright playing better than William Jackson, then maybe you consider, you know, Kendall Fuller shadowing opposing ones. And if they feel comfortable enough that they can just let William Jackson play one side of the ball and Kendall Fuller the other, that's what they did with Darby and Florida last year, uh, you can do that as well. And you don't have to, in man coverage, you don't have to say, okay, William Jackson, you have to go guard this guy every single play. He just can do that. He provides you with that option. But if you feel comfortable with what Kendall Fuller's doing, you can have them just play one side of the field, just play man to that side. And that's more than, that's more than okay. Uh, I'd be comfortable with that as well. I just think that William Jackson's upside and his ability to cover is still better than Kendall Fuller's personally, at least in man. Um, but I mean, either way, we're talking about two bona fide CB1s or, or Kendall Fuller is a super high level, probably the best CB2 in football, to be honest, except maybe Darius Williams and the Rams. Um, so there's, I mean, there's really not much issue with Jack Del Rio is just how he wants to use them versus what he has to do. Yeah, no doubt. It's really exciting to think about what the back end of the defense could be in 2021. While we're talking about that, what do you think happens? What do you think should happen with Landon Collins? I mean, we're not taking Cameron Curl off the field. We saw DeShazer ever do well when he was healthy and out there last season. We saw Jeremy Reeves play well late in the year. Uh, to whatever extent this was ever an option, it doesn't seem like Landon transitioning to linebacker is a thing. He certainly pushed back on that on social media. He, of course, is the big money contract. I mean, you can play three safeties at once. Maybe they do a lot of that. But w- what do you think ends up happening? What should happen with Landon Collins? Yeah, I don't think he's going to make a full transition to linebacker. He was definitely very, very adamant about that on social media pretty recently. Um, my guess is that what will happen is I would imagine that Cam Crow and Landon Collins are both on the field for a majority of the time together, and they'll just try and figure that out, uh, whether it's Cam Crow being used uh, in that corner spot, essentially, so it's like a fourth cornerback um, when they run heavy dime looks, and then Landon Collins is the dime linebacker. Washington really doesn't have any linebacker bodies right now, so it is kind of confusing to see what they're going to do. Uh, it'll be really interesting. I'm not 100% sure, but I do think that the Landon Collins linebacker, so we'll see him in that linebacker spot, a lot more. We'll see him closer to the line of scrimmage because that's where he's at his best. Um, just essentially playing as a box safety and it's just really blurring that line. But I mean, labels are labels. At the end of the day, it's, you know, it's 2021. The the way football is moving is, is so, it's predicated on versatility. It's predicated on playing in space. It's predicated on versatility, being able to play multiple spots. And so I do think that they'll be able to get creative with what they're doing. It just, it does make it hard with Cam Crow and Landon Collins having a close enough similar skill set and neither of them can really do that center fielding, that, that free safety look and that cover one or that cover three, which is really what the defense needs. Jeremy Reeves did it 
adequately enough for the defense to, to shine. Um, but I still think there are upgrades available, right? Guys like Malik Coker, Trey Boston, there are a couple guys in the draft that you could look at as well. Um, but it, I don't know how they're going to play Landon Collins yet. I can't sit here and say that I do. Um, but I do expect Jack Del Rio is, I mean, a great defensive coordinator. So. Yeah, he'll figure it out. And what you say about the direction of the NFL is so true. It really is becoming like the NBA, like a positionless game, you know, especially on defense once you get beyond the front with, you know, linebackers kind of meshing into safeties and safeties meshing into corners and vice versa. It's so interesting the way defense is being done these days. Yeah, I mean, you see guys, like I say, Simmons going top 10 last year. Um, there's a guy I really like, a lot of people really like in Jeremiah Owusu koromoa coming out of Notre Dame, JOK. A lot of Washington fans love him at 19. I think that would make a lot of sense because he gives you a true man coverage linebacker that you've been lacking um, and would make a lot of sense for the team as well and fits that cover one monster that you could see Jack Del Rio really, really wanting to do, especially with a heavy man corner like William Jackson. So, I mean, when you look at the like a team like the Cowboys, right, when you have three dominant wide receivers you have to you have to be able to play man against them or they're just going to pick you apart in zone especially with a quarterback like Dak Prescott so I do think that with that versatility and with the way the NFL is going you're going to continue to see these players that that blend that line between two positions because that's what they're moving to linebackers who can play safety linebackers who can rush the passer safeties who can cover in man and cover a deep third so with the way the NFL is so predicated on speed, and you saw Washington want to answer with some speed, they got two, four, three guys in free agency. Um, the, the league is moving towards a, a space and pace, kind of, like you said, basketball versus, you know, versatility and positionless. Give him a follow on Twitter, at MV Scouting. Matt Valdivinos, draft analyst for Pro Football Network, big Washington football team fan. Great perspective, man. Hope we can do this again. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. All right, we move now to the NCAA tournament. First round getting going on Friday, continuing on Saturday. Maryland, Georgetown, Virginia, Virginia Tech, VCU, all making the field. So we'll go through them team by team here. And don't forget special guest Andy Geiger, creator of Casual Hoya, coming up in just a little bit. But we will begin with the Maryland Terrapins, the 10 seed in the East region, Terps with a first-round game against number 7-seeded UConn at Purdue's Mackey Arena on Saturday night at 7-10. Terps are plus three. So here you have Maryland in the NCAA tournament for a fifth time in six seasons, right? We don't count 2020 when there was no uh, tournament due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But the truth is Mark Turgeon has gotten Maryland the NCAA tournament far more often than not in recent years. Five times in six seasons, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2019, and now 2021. This is a big tournament for Mark Turgeon. He, in October 2016, signed a contract extension through the 2022-2023 season. The director of athletics for Maryland, Damon Evans, has been publicly noncommittal about where we're headed contractually with the Turge. You know how it works in college sports. You don't want a guy going into a walk year or even like approaching a walk year. For recruiting purposes, you want someone under contract to you for years to come so that other schools can't use that in a negative recruiting way to say, you don't want to go to Maryland. They don't even have their coach under contract beyond the next year or two. You know, what, what are you going to do if the guy ups and leaves or gets fired or, you know, whatever ends up taking place? The school doesn't even believe in that coach. Why are you going to buy into what that coach is telling you and go play for him? You know, that kind of a thing. So what is going to happen with Mark Turgeon? Like, is he going to get extended after this season? Is he not going to be extended after this season? If he isn't extended after this season, what does that say? Does he maybe leave? 
You know, it, it, it's a dicey spot that Maryland is in right now. First of all, you got to consider the finances for the athletic department. COVID-19 pandemic, lost revenues. Of course, for Maryland, there's also the Jordan McNair tragedy in football and the financial impact that that has had on things. So are you in a position to fire Mark Turgeon after this season? And of course, do you even want to fire Mark Turgeon after this season? He has done overall a very good job with a roster that doesn't exactly slap you in the face with overwhelming, you know, five-star caliber talent. Now you could say, well, that's Mark Turgeon's fault, right? He's responsible for the less than stellar roster construction for this season. And that is true, but he's coached him up. And on the whole, he's done a good job. Now, this is not a perfect Maryland team. This is a Maryland team that can frustrate you. If you're a fan like me, if you went to the school like me, you know this, okay? The offensive scoring droughts, uh, they drive you nuts. There's no question about that. And uh, there are games where you're like, what is going on with this team? But of course, there also have been games where you love what you see. Maryland had an excellent defensive season. And the Terps go into the 2021 NCAA tournament 35th in Division I in the NCAA's net rankings, 31st in Division One per Kempom.com, which also had the Terps as having played the fourth toughest schedule in Division One in terms of opponents' average adjusted defensive efficiency. That simply points a lot per 100 possessions adjusted for opponents. So the advanced stats have really liked Maryland for a good chunk of this season. Turgeon, to me, deserves a lot of credit for that. But the thing with the Turge over his time at Maryland, and this is now season number 10, believe it or not, for Turgeon as Terps head coach, is there just hasn't been any real high achievement. You know, the greatest run that Maryland has made in an NCAA tournament under Turgeon has been to the Sweet 16. That was in 2016. And that's it. You haven't had any real true high achievement for Mark at Maryland. And while you haven't had like that crater season, you know, it's been with Turgeon at Maryland, a high floor, low ceiling program. And you can do worse. You know, that's the danger with this. Like if people just say, oh, get rid of Turgeon, he stinks. Okay, who you going with? And is he going to be appreciably better? So it's a tough spot that Maryland is in here. But I do know this, if Maryland's one and done, and especially if Maryland gets worked by UConn on Saturday night, you're going to have even more calls that Mark Turgeon isn't the guy and that Mark Turgeon should be out maybe even as soon as after this season. Even though, again, you could argue he's done his best coaching job at Maryland this season. So you look at UConn. UConn to me is beatable. And it's beatable because of this. The top two players for UConn aren't exactly in great spots right now. So UConn's number two score and number one assist man is point guard RJ Cole. And RJ Cole is a name, if you know your local hoops, uh, you know. Uh, RJ Cole was an outstanding player at Howard for two years. He was the MEAC Rookie of the Year for 2017-2018. He was the MEAC Player of the Year for 2018-2019. Cole was in concussion protocol due to having banged his head on the floor, and the Huskies lost to Creighton the semis of the Big East tournament last Friday night. The other very good player for UConn is James Booknight. Uh, he, in the Big East tournament, dealt with cramps, and over the Huskies' two games, went just 8-25 from the field, including 0-7 on threes. Now, Booknight's a lot better than that. He is smooth. He is a very good scorer. This is going to be a difficult defensive assignment for Maryland. But like we said, Maryland is a very good defensive team. Maryland, of course, has the Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year and Daryl Morsell. Do I think Morsell can check Booknight? Do I think Morsell can hold Booknight to a very respectable, modest point total? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. So I don't like live in fear of Cole and Booknight, but it's worth noting like those guys are good. Uh, but it's also worth acknowledging those guys are not coming off having had very good Big East tournaments. UConn as a whole, 30th 
in the net rankings going into this tournament, 16th in the KenPalm.com rankings going into the tournament. UConn's one of the teams that has actually done both offense and defense well for KenPalm.com going into the tournament, 24th in adjusted offensive efficiency, 25th in adjusted defensive efficiency. And there's another thing to be mindful of with UConn, very good at blocking shots. As of the start of the NCAA tournament, UConn eighth in Division I in block shots per game at 5.27. A big reason for that, the 6'9", Isaiah Whaley, who as of the start of the tournament, number 12 in Division I in block shots per game at 2.64. You know Maryland is going to want to slow things down. The Terps, as of the start of the NCAA tournament, 335th in Division I per TeamRankings.com in possessions per game, okay? You talk about fewest possessions per game. Maryland is up there in terms of the teams that play it slow. You know, this is one of the things that I've never liked is that Maryland did not take the ACC to the Big Ten. Maryland has allowed itself to be infected with Big Ten-itis over the years since making the conference switch. And Maryland now is one of the slowest playing teams in the country fewer possessions per game. Now, I get that. When you are a lower talent team, as Maryland is, that's what you do want to do. You want to shorten the game. You want to lessen the possessions. The fewer possessions in the game, the less likely it is that the more talented team wins. And, you know, it's not to say that, like, Maryland doesn't have talent, but it's not a roster that's overwhelming with talent. So you got to try to piecemeal some of these victories together. But that, that, that was amazing. When I came across that, man, 335th in the country is Maryland in possessions per game. Virginia, by the way, is 347. This is a rematch of one of the great games in Maryland basketball history, Maryland-UConn in the Elite Eight in the 2002 NCAA tournament at Syracuse's Carrier Dome. Terps beating a UConn team that included Karan Butler, Emeka Okafor, Ben Gordon. Uh, Terps, of course, had Juan Dixon, had Lonnie Baxter, had Steve Blake, had Chris Wilcox, ended up winning the NCAA tournament that year, but this may well have been the best game of that tournament for Maryland. You know, there was the Final Four game with Kansas that was very good, but this Elite Eight game was a classic, a 90-82 Maryland win over UConn. The Terps were a number one seed. UConn was a number two seed. It, of course, was Gary Williams, Jim Calhoun. Gary and Calhoun had major issues uh, just a year or two later with the whole Rudy Gay scenario and a big article that came out on ESPN.com where Calhoun and his shady tactics at UConn with the AAU circuit got exposed and Gary called Calhoun out on that. So there is a history between the Terrapins and the Huskies. I do think, though, like I said, this is a winnable game. I expect Maryland to win. I will be disappointed if Maryland does not, and I will take the Terps plus the three. So is the magic going to continue for Georgetown? The Hoyas, the 12 seed in the East region for the 2021 NCAA tournament first round game against number five seeded Colorado at Butler's Hinkle Fieldhouse Saturday afternoon at 12.15. The Hoyas are plus six and a half, and I don't know what to expect with this game, to be totally honest with you. I mean, it's almost pointless to do like analysis here because the Georgetown team we saw for so much of this season was not on display in that magical Big East tournament run. The Hoyas, as the eight seed in the tournament, end up winning the conference tournament, doing really the only thing that Georgetown could do to make this NCAA tournament. Just an incredible job by Patrick Ewing and his players. We talked about it in depth on Monday's podcast. And so when you get into like, well, where do the Hoyas rank, you know, in the net? Well, Georgetown's 64th in the net as of the start of the NCAA tournament, just 55th in Division I 
for KemPom.com as of the start of the NCAA tournament. But I don't know that any of that matters, okay? Because if the Georgetown team we saw in the Big East tournament is what we see against Colorado on Saturday afternoon, then Georgetown's going to win the game. Georgetown was outstanding in that Big East tournament. That was a demolition that Georgetown authored of Creighton in the Big East championship game last Saturday night at Madison Square Garden. That was a great defensive job that Georgetown put forth in the second half of the win over Seton Hall in the Big East tournament semis on Friday night. Like, if that's what we see from the Hoyas against Colorado, then heck yeah, Georgetown is going to end up pulling this thing off. This is, of course, a 12-5 matchup. Uh, It is a thing. I know it's cliche, but it is very much a thing. The 12-5 upset in the NCAA tournament. We have had at least two 12-5 upsets in 10 of the last 21 NCAA tournaments. Not one, two in basically half of the last 21 NCAA tournaments. 10 of the last 21, you've had at least two 12-5 upsets. And how about this? We have had three 12-5 upsets in five of the last 18 NCAA tournaments. So forget about, you know, one 12-5 upset. You get two quite a bit, and you even get three more than you may think. Five of the last 18 NCAA tournaments. Now, Colorado is a good team. Colorado, as of the start of the NCAA tournament, 15th in the net rankings, 17th for Kempom.com, which also had the Buffs 17th in adjusted offensive efficiency, 29th in adjusted defensive efficiency. You know, Colorado is one of these teams that does just a lot of things well. I mean, I don't know that Colorado does anything at an elite level or at a great level. Uh, Although, actually, you could say free throw shooting. Uh, Colorado, as of the start of the NCAA tournament, second in Division I in free throw percentage at 82.16. Hoy is 44th at 75.4. Colorado has a very good point guard, a senior point guard, McKinley Wright IV. He led all Pac-12 players in assists per game over the regular season and conference tournament at 5.6. McKinley Wright, during the regular season in Pac-12 play, had a 14 assist game, had a 12 assist game. So look, if Georgetown's defense isn't at the level that we saw in the Big East tournament, McKinley Wright is going to pick the Hoyas apart. I do believe that. But if we see that 1980s caliber Hoyas defense that was on display at MSG, then anything is possible. And one of the great encouraging things about what the Hoyas did at MSG was this wasn't the result of just like one guy catching fire. You know, this wasn't like a Jerry McNamara scenario for Syracuse in 2006. This was a lot of different people contributing to the cause. Whether you're talking about Shooter or Belay or Dante Harris, who ended up winning the Dave Gavitt Trophy as the most outstanding player for the Big East tournament, or Jamarco Pickett, or Javon Blair, or Kudis Wahab. You know, on and on we can go about all of the different Georgetown Hoyas who have contributed uh, to this run to make the NCAA tournament. I do like the Hoyas to continue the run. I will take them plus the six and a half, and I know that pleases the second of our two special guests on this podcast. Very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, Andy Geiger, creator of Casual Hoya, a must-read site about Georgetown basketball, and a must-follow Twitter account, at Casual Hoya. Andy has been killing it on Twitter, including tweeting this past Saturday night when Georgetown won the Big East tournament, and I quote, Georgetown is the GameStop of college basketball. That cracked me up. Andy, great to talk to you, man. How are you? I'm good, Al. Happy to be here. Obviously happy to be here and discussing Georgetown in the NCAA tournament. Clearly something I was not anticipating 
uh, having the opportunity to do just one short week ago. Yeah, I don't know that many people were anticipating something like this. Before we uh, get into this incredible surge by the Hoyas, tell us about Casual Hoya. How'd you get started with it? Uh, the website's been around since 2009. Um, it's part of the SB Nation uh, network of sports blogs. And um, yeah, I mean, back in 2009, the program was in a bit of a different spot. Obviously, we uh, we were just coming off a final four run in 2007. Greg Monroe was coming to town. Um, uh, the fan base was, was certainly in a different position as it was uh, that they are now. Um, and the site's been going, you know, it's been over a decade. Uh, and it's 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 been kind of a roller coaster on the website. It's kind of gone along with the, with the team's success as far as seeing the, the fans' interest in, in talking uh, Georgetown basketball. I will say that um, this past weekend and winning the biggest tournament was was really special for me because again having the site uh, start back in 2009 I've seen the fan base at its most wild um, and enthusiastic and then in the when the program hit a bit of a downturn towards the end of the JT3 era and uh, the past few years you can see how the fan base kind of was just sort of aloof you know um, and it's a really amazing that in a matter of just one week to see this team that was an eight seed in the biggest tournament win the whole thing and have the fan base come back to life. Um, it's been pretty special. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, that's a really cool thing. You know, you mentioned the Hoyas winning the Big East tournament, and it's so interesting to me. Georgetown has had such an odd year because they've looked so bad at times. Then they played better as the season went on. And then they looked so awful in that regular season ending loss at UConn two Saturdays ago. It's like you didn't know what to expect come the conference tournament. How surprised were you by Georgetown winning the Big East tournament? I'd be lying if I said I was not surprised. <laughs> I mean, um, I think the UConn is a team that traditionally Georgetown doesn't match up very well against. Um, and I'm glad that we didn't have to face them last weekend in the Garden. Um but the, after the the team had a COVID pause, I think we're ten and four, ten and three, you know, in our in our last stretch of games, which is pretty impressive. Um, it, it's coincided with Patrick Ewing inserting Chudier Bile into the the starting lineup, and he's really um, been a stabilizing force uh, for us. So um, while of course we were surprised at Georgetown running the table in the biggest tournament and, and winning it, um, they have been more competitive over the past month or so of the season. I talked about this on the podcast. I'm curious for your take on this. Going into the Big East tournament, I did not think it was a given that Patrick Ewing would be back as Hoyas head coach next season. Do you think it's overstating things to say that the Hoyas winning the Big East tournament or at the very least going deep into the Big East tournament saved Patrick's job? I I do. He wasn't going anywhere. Um, Georgetown politics aside, uh, he's got a really strong recruiting class coming in next season. Uh, we have a five-star shooting guard, Amina Muhammad. We have Dikembe Mutombo's son, Ryan Mutombo, um, Tyler Beard, uh, Jordan Riley, Jalen Billingsley. These are all highly touted uh, kids who um, were really supposed to set the, the program on the on the path to to you know the progress next year. Um, so this is really just icing on the cake. Um, and obviously, after you win a Big East tournament, uh, he's not going anywhere. Regardless of the fact that he's, you know, Georgetown's favorite son, um, and that that says a lot when you have the Thompson coaching tree. Of course, um, he's. He, I think the biggest fear that Georgetown fans had when he was hired 
was that it would kind of end up in how Chris, the Chris Mullen situation ended up in St. John's. Um, when you take the arguably the program's best player and you have him the head coach and things go sour, you know, how does that really end up? Um, but after winning the Big East tournament the way he did in year four, and just the wave of enthusiasm, not just from Georgetown fans, but from the, the national media as a whole, um, you know, it seemed like everybody was rooting for Georgetown, which is not a position that we're used to seeing. Um, he, he's, you know, I'm not going to say head coach for life, but there's certainly no degree of heat on his seat at all. So that's interesting. So, like, had he been one and done in the conference tournament, you still think he would have been back? Absolutely. Okay. Because the, the, the recruiting class that he has coming in next season, which I think is ranked top 10 nationally right now, I mean, he's, he was going to certainly be given a chance to, to coach those guys. So one of the things that's really stood out about the Hoyas and what they did in the Big East tournament is the defense. And Georgetown's defense during the Patrick Ewing run here as head coach hasn't always been stellar. It's kind of odd. The offense, you know, they've they've scored points. That's not really been the big problem he's coming into this season. But defensively, they've had issues. Defense has been so much better lately. Why do you think that is? Uh, a few reasons. Um, I mentioned inserting Chudier uh, Bile into the starting lineup has has really improved defensively. He's a a relentless defender, uh, both on the perimeter and uh, down low. Dante Harris, uh, who you've, you've probably heard about, uh, he's a freshman point guard who is very quick defensively and um, has done a good job about a good job on shutting down the opponent's point guards. And Jamarco Pickett, who prior to this season was really being relied on to do a lot offensively, um, has really settled into a role where he can just control a game on the defensive end. It doesn't have to force things offensively as much now that you have guys like Harris, Javon Blair, and of course, Kudus Wahab, who's a, a load down low, um, producing on the offensive end. You mentioned Javon Blair. It was interesting when he went from starting to coming off the bench. Patrick, uh, and nobody was surprised by this, didn't exactly open up about the decision. Do we know, was that like a disciplinary thing or was that just a strategic thing? Uh, I, I don't know. Um, of course, knowing how the Georgetown program works over the years since I've had this site. I'm sure it was a more of a disciplinary thing. Um, and then since it actually worked, it's now become a strategic thing. Um, it certainly helps to have a guy who can come into the game and be instant offense, uh, you know, off the bench like that. Um, and so now there's really no reason to reinsert him into the starting lineup. All right, so let's get to the game on Saturday. Georgetown, Colorado at Butler's Hinkle Fieldhouse, Saturday afternoon at 12.15. It's interesting, and anyone who's a Hoyas fan knows this. Georgetown has had this weird deal where it's won a lot at Butler's Hinkle Fieldhouse since Butler joined the Big East, although that didn't happen uh, earlier this season. But how do you feel about this game here, Georgetown, Colorado, and the Hoyas' chances for winning? Uh, look, I obviously like the fact that we're playing Hinkle. Um you know, it's it's uh, a gym and a background and all that Georgetown is certainly familiar with over the years. And they, like you said, they have had success against Butler. Um, 12-5 games, you got to like the odds. I think 12 seeds or something like 24-16 and 16 in the last 40 NCAA tournament games. Um, so if it's a coin flip, I'll take the side with that's coming into the tournament with, with a lot of momentum. I think Georgetown... Um, you know, one of the things I worry about is you have so much momentum and you have the run in the garden and then now you have a few days off, whether you approach that with the same intensity, uh, that's, that's, that's always a big question. Uh, but I think we match up well, at least on paper, against Colorado, and uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to a strong showing for the Hoyas. 
it's so hard to answer a question like this, but I'll answer it anyway, because this was really special, what Georgetown did in winning the Big East tournament. You know, it's so odd how sports can work, right? The year in which Coach Thompson dies, Georgetown wins the Big East tournament as an eight seed, you know, picked to finish last in the conference. That team wins the conference tournament. Like, it's just like a lot of karmic juju, it feels like, on the Hoyas side. But does it feel to you like Georgetown is back, that we're going to look back upon that conference tournament run as the start of the team getting back to where it's been? Or could you see this being just like a, a mere momentary surge and the Hoyas next season are back to where they largely been at the last few seasons? Well, I, I hope that doesn't happen. Um, you know, I, I do think the fan base uh, certainly hopes that Georgetown's back. I think obviously winning the Big East tournament, and then I've mentioned this recruiting class that he has coming in next season. Um, and some of these seniors might stick around for next season due to the you know the rules from with, with, with COVID. So I do think that Georgetown is, is certainly here to stay for a while. Um, you know, whether that means we're winning a national championship in the next couple of years, who knows? But Georgetown should certainly be in the upper echelon of the Big East for the foreseeable future. And obviously when you have a run like this, um, you know, when, when the national media takes notice, uh, you know, it's interesting. I've gotten a lot of people who reached out to me just knowing that I went to Georgetown. When Georgetown plays well, people care. You know, I can't, I can't say that about other schools perhaps in the Bees. You know, Villanova, they've been really good lately, but it's Villanova. I mean, Georgetown, people like Georgetown, the brand, um, you know, dating back to the 80s, then you've got Iverson. I mean, Georgetown matters. So I think when Georgetown plays well, um, it just it just makes people take note a little bit more. And, it, and it's really great to see. So I do hope that we're back. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's going to be an exciting ride. Yeah, no doubt. And I think people like Patrick, too. Like, obviously, people know who he is. People can identify with, you know, the favorite son, like you called him, going back to his school that rant he had when he said that they didn't recognize him at MSG, like I think that resonated with people. So, and, and think about Patrick Tune. I've always respected this. You know, he wasn't to me like just handed that Hoyas head coaching job. He toiled for years as an NBA assistant. And I, I've got a lot of respect for a guy like that because with all the money he made as an NBA player, he could have gone and, you know, lived on a beach the rest of his life and, and never cared to do anything else again. It's like, no, he, he worked at it. He wanted to be a head coach. And it's good to see him having success now. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the job certainly wasn't handed to him. Um, and it's for the same reasons I mentioned with the, the Mullen St. John situation, there are a lot of potential pitfalls. Like it could go south and it could be really bad um, and not end well. Um, and so I'm really happy for him. I'm really happy, really happy for the coaching staff that has, you know, as a whole, not just Ewing, but the assistants who have been there for years um, and the seniors that have been there for so long. Um, and it's, it's just really great to see. And he, ha he, you're right. I mean, he's become almost like a media darling, the way he's handled all the success. Uh, and it, it's fun. I mean, look, it, it's been a long drought for Georgetown, right? I mean, we haven't made the tournament since 2015. We hadn't won a Biggies tournament since 2007. Um, it's just great to be back and, and, and matter and have people talking about it and having me join you, you know? Like, <laughs> it's just, it's just... It's just really fun. Yeah, no doubt, man. Well, enjoy the game. Hope the Hoyas keep it going. And all the best to you. Continued success with the site. Thanks, brother. Talk to you soon. Thanks. We get into now the teams of the Commonwealth of Virginia in this 2021 NCAA tournament. Virginia, Virginia Tech, and VCU. So we think Virginia is going to be a participant in this NCAA tournament. Uh, nothing negative has come up. Uh, no pun intended 
regarding Virginia's COVID-19 situation. So presumably, hopefully, things are going to work out here to where the Cavaliers can play their game. Remember, it's not till Saturday evening. Virginia is the four seed in the West region, is set to take on 13-seeded Ohio at Indiana University's Assembly Hall Saturday evening at 7-15. Virginia is a seven-and-a-half point favorite. So as you likely know by now, the Cavaliers game against Georgia Tech at the Greensboro Coliseum in the semis of the ACC tournament canceled due to a positive COVID-19 test within the Virginia program. Virginia has been quarantining. The NCAA has very specific rules this year for the NCAA tournament regarding COVID-19. But we're way past now the deadline by which you can put in a substitute team. So if Virginia can't play this game, it's a forfeit and Ohio ends up advancing. If Virginia does play this game, I mean, yes, you've got to like Virginia's chances at winning this game. It's been an odd year for the Cavaliers, no doubt, but this is still a good Virginia team. Uh, Virginia, as of the start of the NCAA tournament, 12th in Division I in the net rankings, 11th in Division I per KenPom.com. Ohio, 87th in the net, 78th per KenPom. Now, Ohio is formidable. Ohio did lose by a mere two points, 77-75 at Illinois back on November 27th. Illinois, of course, is one of the one seeds in this tournament. And, you know, Virginia's defense this season overall is good, like good when you compare it to everybody else. But it's not the elite, uber, stifling, pack line Tony Bennett defense we've become accustomed to during his time as Cavaliers head coach. Uh, Virginia has had some defensive issues, especially as this season has gone on. Heck, go back to the ACC tournament. The lone game that Virginia played in that, the win, that 72-69 win over Syracuse in the quarter's two Thursday afternoons ago. Remember how Virginia had to win that game? The freshman, Reese Beekman, had to hit a game-winning wide-open right-wing three at the buzzer off a great feed, by the way, by the Virginia point guard, Kihei Clark, from the left elbow. But the Cavaliers in that game, they blew a 67-61 lead with less than two minutes left in the second half. And the Cavs got scorched in that game by Jim Beheim's son. Buddy Beheim went nuclear. Five of eight on threes, finished with 31 points. You know, that's not what we're used to from Virginia. A guy going off like that, putting up 31 points in 39 minutes as a starter, as Buddy Beheim did. So, you know, you do wonder at least somewhat if Virginia's great defense is going to be on display in this game against Ohio. You're going to need the two transfers who've been so good for Virginia this season, Sam Hauser and Trey Murphy the third, to be good. They were not good in that win uh, over Syracuse. Uh, those two in that game have combined 6-21 to on threes. You're going to need Kihei Clark to have an efficient game from a passing standpoint. You're going to need the big man, Jay Huff, to bring it. You know, and he's been good for the most part this year. Points, rebounds, blocks, that sort of a thing. You know, Virginia is not as good as it was in 2019 when the Cavaliers won the national championship. But like I said, this is still a good Virginia team that should be able to beat Ohio. But as we know, weird things can happen for Wahoo when it comes to first-round NCAA tournament games. Everyone remembers what went down against UMBC in 2018, the first and only instance of a one seed losing to a 16 seed. And of course, it's not just that Virginia lost that game. It's that Virginia got blown out in that game. That was a 74-54 blowout loss for then one seeded Virginia to then 16 seeded UMBC in Charlotte three years ago. But it's not just that. Like I said, it's also what happened in 2019. This gets forgotten. Virginia, of course, goes on to win the 2019 NCAA tournament. But the Wahoos were incredibly tight in their first round game in that tournament. What ended up being a 71-56 win over the 16th seed Gardner-Webb. But the Hoos in that game trailed by 14 in the first half at 30-16. That gets like completely 
misremembered, as Roger Clemens would say, from that Virginia run to the national championship in 2019. But that did happen. Virginia almost lost to a 16 seed in a second consecutive year in 2019. So like I said, odd things can go down for Wahoo in the first rounds of these NCAA tournaments. But if this game is played, Virginia should win. And we just keep our fingers crossed that this game does, in fact, end up being played. When it comes to Virginia Tech, so the Hokies are going to play the very first game in the first round of the 2021 NCAA tournament. Hokies are the 10 seed in the South region, going to be facing seven-seeded Florida, Butler's Hinkle Fieldhouse, Friday afternoon at 12.15. The game is a pick'em. Uh, Hokies are an interesting team. We've talked about them. The analytics don't love them, even though the overall record for Tech in the season was good going uh, into the tournament as of the start of the tournament. Virginia Tech, 48th in the net rankings, 50th per Kempom.com. Florida, 31st in the net rankings, 37th per Kempom.com. But Florida lost three of its last four games going into this NCAA tournament. And for the Hokies, you know, I don't know what we should think because Virginia Tech has like barely played over the last few weeks. The Hokies ended up being one and done in the ACC tournament, lost 81-73 to North Carolina in the quarters two Thursday nights ago. That was Tech's first game since February 27th. It was just Tech's third game since February 6th. The Hokies have dealt with a lot in the way of COVID-19-induced postponements slash cancellations this season. And so there just hasn't been a lot to chew on with Virginia Tech basketball over these last few weeks. Now, is Virginia Tech a good team? Yeah, it is. Does Virginia Tech have good players? Yes, uh, the Hokies do. You know, Keve Aluma, Naheem Aleen, Wabi Sabidi, Justin Mutz, all these guys are capable. You know, Mutz was big in that loss to Carolina in the ACC tournament. Three of five on threes, 24 points, eight rebounds. Uh, I like a lot about Virginia Tech. The head coach, Mike Young, was the ACC coach of the year for this season. And Hokies basketball is in a much different place right now as compared to where it has been. You know, Tech, remember, made the Sweet 16 in the last NCAA tournament, the 2019 tournament, first time that Tech basketball had made the Sweet 16 since the tournament expansion in 1985. You know, this is now for Virginia Tech, it making the NCAA tournament in four of the last four seasons in which we have had an NCAA tournament. Mike Young's in a great job in taking over for Buzz Williams with him uh, having left to become Texas A&M's head coach after Tech's uh, run of the Sweet 16 there in the 2019 tournament. So I like a lot about Tech. I just don't know what we are to think about Tech because like I said, Tech has barely been playing. And then there is VCU. VCU, the 10 seed in the West region to face seven-seeded Oregon at Indiana Farmers Coliseum in Indianapolis. That's a late game on Saturday. That game uh, set to tip Saturday night at 9.57. VCU is a five-point underdog. And VCU is, in a lot of ways, what Virginia has been. Excellent defensively. Uh, not very impressive offensively. Although Virginia actually has had some very efficient offensive teams in recent years. But VCU, how about this discrepancy in terms of the adjusted offensive efficiency and adjusted defensive efficiency rankings per Kempom.com? So VCU per Kempom.com as of the start of the NCAA tournament, 12th in Division I in adjusted defensive efficiency. That's outstanding, obviously. But 117th in adjusted offensive efficiency for Kempom.com. So you do worry about the VCU offense, even against an Oregon team that as of the start of the NCAA tournament was just 76th in Division I in adjusted defensive efficiency for Kempom.com. Oregon was the Pac-12 regular season champion, did lose to Oregon State in the semis 
of the Pac-12 tournament. There is, though, a lot to believe in with VCU. The head coach, Mike Rhodes, has done a very good job. VCU has the A-10 Player of the Year in Bones Highland. And just VCU as a program overall, making the NCAA tournament is nothing new. This is the 12th time that VCU has made the NCAA tournament since 2004. We arrive at the stunner from Thursday night that really, truly wasn't stunning at all. The Wizards, our Wizards, defeated the best team in the NBA. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, thank you, Stephen A. The Wizards get to 15-25 and with a 131-122 win over the NBA-leading Utah Jazz at Capital One Arena on Thursday night. As predictable as the sun rising in the east was the Wizards winning this game. The Wizards were reeling. They had lost five consecutive games in seven of eight. The Jazz came into the game an NBA best 29-10, and 10, although Utah also came into the game having lost 4-7. And the Wizards ended up winning because this is what the Wizards do. They tease you. They flirt with you. They seduce you into thinking, you know what? They're not that bad. You know what? They are pretty good. Just when you count them out, they rise to the occasion. Just when you're ready to check out, They yank you back in. And that's what the Wizards do. And then, of course, they ultimately disappoint you because that's been the way it's gone for years. But when you're ready to bury them, as we were starting to feel with them losing the 7 of 8, you know, I talked about them on Thursday's podcast that lost to the lowly Sacramento Kings on Wednesday night. I mean, the Wizards were playing the second game of a back-to-back on Thursday night and still knocked off the best team in the NBA. And it's not just that. This game was a no-doubter. The Wizards won the first quarter 31-20 led in the second quarter by as many as 24 points, and never trailed in the second half, during which the Wizards never led by fewer than seven points. Wizards were solid offensively, seven of 17 on threes, 40 of 69 on twos. Wizards actually ripped the Jazz in the paint, outscored the Jazz in the paint, 54-38. The Wizards held the Jazz, which is an excellent three-point shooting team, to just 18 of 48 on threes. Uh, Donovan Mitchell went just four of 12 on threes, though he did finish with 42 points. So you can't say the Wizards like shut down Donovan Mitchell because that's not true. The guy had 33 points in the second half, but it was an inefficient night from a three-point shooting standpoint for Mitchell and for the Jazz as a team overall. And the Wizards dominated at the free throw line. Wizards went 30 for 38 on free throws. The Jazz went just 16 for 28 on free throws. But here is maybe the best thing about this Wizards win over the Jazz on Thursday night. The streak is over. Now you say, what streak? What are you talking about? The losing streak? Well, no, not just that streak. The Wizards, as you may know, had lost 11 consecutive games in which Bradley Beal scored at least 40 points. It was one of the more embarrassing things about the Wizards-Beal scenario. That every time Beal went off, every time Beal got to 40, the Wizards lost. It, in fact, had been the longest such losing streak in NBA history. Every time a guy scores at least 40, you lose. 11 consecutive times that happened for the Wizards. That had been the longest such losing streak in NBA history. Well, the streak is no more because Bradley Beal went off on Thursday night and the Wizards finally won. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, thank you, Stephen A. Beal was awesome. Four of six on threes, 12 of 18 on twos, seven of eight on free throws. He finished with 43 points and five assists versus three turnovers. Beal was a monster in the second half. It actually was a rather underwhelming first half for Beal. Second half, he went off 30 points for Bradley Beal 
over the final two quarters in the game. So Beal was great. Russell Westbrook was great on Thursday night. Another triple-double. It's amazing how he racks these things up. 13th triple-double of the season for Westbrook. He's now too shy of the all-time franchise mark in terms of career regular season triple-doubles. Daryl Walker at 15. Westbrook over just 33 games as a Wizard with 13. Uh, Westbrook had 35 points, 15 rebounds, 13 assists versus five turnovers to go with two steals. And Westbrook was efficient as a shooter. This was not one of these Westbrook nights where, yeah, gets you a triple-double, but he's all over the place in terms of the shooting. He was good from a shooting standpoint. Two of five on threes, 10 of 18 on twos, nine of 11 on free throws. That in and of itself was a victory on Thursday night. Russell Westbrook being good on his free throws off, having been so bad on his free throws so far this year. But how about Westbrook in the first quarter? You know, Wizards have gotten off to so few good starts this season, got off to a great start on Thursday night, won the first quarter 31-20. Westbrook was the biggest reason why. 13.6 rebounds, three assists, versus no turnovers. Rui Hachimura had a nice night, 12 points, 5 of 10 shooting, and 7 rebounds. You know, Hachimura, since that awful night he had last Friday night, that uh, 127-101 loss to the Philadelphia 76ers at Capital One Arena, Hachimura in that game, 0 rebounds in 21 minutes, 4 seconds of playing time as a starter. Hachimura has been very good since that game. If there was a negative on Thursday night for the Wizards, it was Davies Bertans exiting the game due to injuries, dealing with his right calf tightness again. Uh, he actually missed a game uh, about a week ago now due to the right calf tightness. He missed that 123-119 loss to the Milwaukee Bucks at Capital One Arena last Saturday night, a game in which uh, not only were the Wizards without Bertans, they were without Bradley Beal uh, due to rest, and the Wizards actually ended up making that a game, right? That was a close loss for the Wizards to the Mighty Bucks last Saturday night. But anyway, Bertans missed that game due to right calf tightness on Thursday night, plays for just three minutes, 40 seconds off the bench due to right calf tightness. So his rough season continues. But the Wizards, they pulled it off, predictably so. This is what the Wizards do. Uh, they're now 15 and 25, five games behind the Boston Celtics and New York Knicks for the seventh and eighth spots in the Eastern Conference. And next for the Wizards, another tough opponent. Wiz are at the Brooklyn Nets Sunday night at 7. The Nets have won six straight, are tied with the Philadelphia 76ers for first in the East at 28 and 13. And we will wrap up this installment of the Al Galdi podcast, what is the Friday of week four of the Al Galdi podcast, by talking some baseball and an encouraging development for the Nationals on Thursday at spring training. So John Lester finally made his exhibition debut. Came in a 3-1 Grapefruit League win over the New York Mets on Thursday afternoon. Lester one run in two innings on two strikeouts versus one hit a double and a walk. He threw 21 of his 31 pitches for strikes. And just that he was out there was a positive thing. Uh, John Lester underwent surgery to remove one of his parathyroids on March 5th. Rejoined the Nats on March 8th but he had not yet made his exhibition debut. Well, that debut now has been made. And so the notion of Lester being ready for the start of the regular season, and by the way, we are now inside of two weeks until opening day, Nats Mets, Nationals Park, opening night, April 1st, okay? Two weeks from right now, Friday, we will be discussing what went down for the Nationals against the Mets in Nats Park. The fact that we're closing in on the start of the regular season, you're like, okay, like, is Lester going to be ready? You know, is Steven Strasburg going to be ready with his left calf strain? Well, Strasburg uh, is still on the mend, and we're still trying to figure that out with him. But with Lester, there is enough time here for him to ramp up and be ready for the start of the regular season, especially when you consider 
He's going to be the Nats' number four starter. He's not going to be needed really until the second series of the season, assuming that Strasburg uh, will be good to go. And I guess we shouldn't assume that. But if he's good to go, then you're not going to even need Lester until series number two. Uh, John Lester going into his age 37 season, but John Lester has been so durable in his career. I don't really worry that much about him from a standpoint of like, is he going to be able to tough this out or figure this out and and be good to go? I I think Lester can do that. Uh, You know, just got to hope that the arm responds and that uh, everything else checks out just fine. Now, one notable thing from the exhibition outing for Lester, he averaged 88 miles per hour with his fastball, topping out at 90. The velocity is a big time concern with John Lester. He has not been very good over the last two years. 2019 with the Chicago Cubs, a 446 ERA over 31 starts. 2020 with the Cubs, a 516 ERA over 12 starts. And a big part of the problem last year for Lester was the diminished velocity. His average forcing fastball velocity per Sports Info Solutions in 2020, a career worst 89.8 miles per hour. Uh, He was at 91.3 miles per hour in 2016. So the velo, as is said in baseball, has dipped and dipped precipitously over the last few years. That's a big drop to go from 91.3 to 89.8 over the course of a few years like that. He's an older guy. I mean, like, that's what happens as you get older. Your velocity diminishes. And so uh, control becomes of utmost importance. But good to see Lester out there on Thursday. Hopefully things continue to trend for him in a positive direction. Remember this too with Lester, he's got familiarity with this Nationals coaching staff. Davey Martinez was the Cubs bench coach from 2015 to 2017, worked with Lester. Uh, the Nats' new pitching coach is Jim Hickey, who was the Cubs pitching coach for the 2018 season, worked with Lester. As for the Orioles, no exhibition game for them on Thursday, but we did have some very good Orioles news. MLB Pipeline is putting out its top 10 farm systems in baseball. The Orioles have been ranked as having the number five farm system in all of baseball. And if you're an Orioles fan, you know how significant this is. The farm system for so long was barren, i.e. producing nothing, i.e. having nothing. It was one of the real indictments of the Dan Tuquette, Buck Showalter era, the state of the farm system, especially when those guys departed. And it wasn't all their faults, okay? The Orioles were ridiculous. Peter Angelos had been ridiculous in terms of never spending money on Latin American players. So it's not just like that's all a reflection of Duquette and Buck, but it was something that went on under their watch. And of course, there are other ways to get prospects than signing guys from the Dominican Republic. And the Orioles, for way too long, have not gotten nearly enough out of their draft picks. Just have not done a good job drafting and developing players. Well, Hopefully, this is starting to change. And the fact that you already can say the O's have a top five farm system in baseball, big time credit to executive vice president and general manager, Mike Elias, and what he's got going on here with this all-in on analytics approach. So five of the top 77 prospects per MLB pipeline are Orioles prospects. Catcher Adley Rutschman, number two. Pitcher Grayson Rodriguez, number 27. Outfielder Heston Kerstad, number 69. Pitcher D.L. Hall, number 70, and first baseman slash outfielder Ryan Mountcastle at number 77, and Reed's MLB pipeline on the Orioles' farm system. Several years into their organizational rebuild, the Orioles have reshaped their farm system from one of baseball's weakest into one of its best. The organization is keyed in on top draft picks like Adley Rutschman and Heston Kerstad, while also reestablishing a presence 
in Latin America. And you can't emphasize enough the latter part of that sentence, reestablishing the presence in Latin America. Why Peter Angelos would not pay money for Latin American prospects, I will never understand. Because you can almost always sign those guys on the relative cheap, and so often they end up panning out. The per capita production of quality major leaguers from the Dominican Republic is unreal. No one can understand this, why that is, but it is. And all you need to do is look at the Nationals and how they revamped their Latin American operations from the debacle that was the Jim Bowden, Jose Rio, Smiley, Gonzalez scandal into what you have now. Mike Rizzo, Johnny DePuglia, and a Latin American operation for the Nationals that has turned out, of course, Juan Soto, Victor Robles, Juan, Juan Soto, Victor Robles, Luis Garcia, you know, Wander Suero, like on and on you can go all these different Latin American players who have come through for the Nationals at various points, or in the case of a guy like Garcia, hopefully will be coming through. I mean, just Soto alone is worth it, right? And that the Orioles have like not been a participant in this up until recently is just absurd. So it's great that they're in on that. But more to the point, you got to draft and develop better. And hopefully that's happening here. Uh, Rutschman, Rodriguez, Kerstad, Hall, Mountcastle. The cavalry hopefully is coming. Look, the O's are going to be bad again in 2021. I'm, I'm not trying to tell you otherwise. But this thing of you're going through this all-in rebuild, this total teardown, this purification of the organization, uh, this top five ranking in terms of having the number five farm system in baseball, that to me is kind of like a little sign, a gleam in the sky of, you know what, all of the pain now very well could be turning into pleasure later. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Subscribe, rate, review. Appreciate you guys doing that so much. Really does help out. If you've missed some stuff this week, a weekend's a good time to catch up. Gary Williams is great talking Maryland basketball with me. That was on Tuesday's podcast. Mike Petriello of MLB.com was terrific on Juan Soto in the Nationals. That was on Wednesday's podcast. Of course, we've done so much this week on the Washington football team. Ryan Fitzpatrick, William Jackson III, Curtis Samuel. Uh, those signings broken down scientifically Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, respectively. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the NCAA tournament. I'll talk to you on Monday. Okay, we wound up 5-11. and 11. Not very good.